Welcome back to the Sports Dorks Podcast. This is the first episode of the winter term. We've got Joe Moore, Owen Murray, Joe Krasnowski, Lily Crane, Jack Lazarus, and I'm Bertie Ruth. We're going to be breaking down some of Oregon's winter sports, starting with women's basketball. It hasn't quite been the year that we were hoping for, fans were expecting. There's been injuries, there's been blowout losses, there's been losses to teams that should have been wins. What is happening? What's going on with this women's team? What have we seen so far this season? This team is, it wasn't, they weren't expected to do well, but uh, some of these losses early in the in the non-conference, you got losses to schools like Santa Clara, you have losses to University of Portland, Utah Tech. Those are some rough losses. Those are games you want to win. Some of them, the Pac-12 is really good this year. Some of them have been excusable, especially um, to the California schools, UCLA and USC. And Oregon State has also been very good this year. There is some promise. They picked up some quality wins over Arizona, Arizona State. They have some tough games coming up this weekend with Stanford and Cal. But if they can build on that momentum, maybe there's some upward mobility in the standings. Yeah, a lot of the early problems just have to do, partially have to do with injuries. I mean, this is a team that has really struggled to stay healthy at times and you know that that's been a little bit detrimental uh given that it's a lot of young faces a lot of new faces uh and just not having any consistency with the players that have seen the floor uh and that's why I think part of the reason why there's some of these blowout losses just not a whole lot of wins in the record uh and yeah, again, it's a young team that just needs some consistency, and, and that's also tough to find in a stacked Pac-12 conference. I think I think what they have proved, though, throughout these last two games is that they're not the bottom. They're not the last team, <clears throat> which is kind of a positive to be taken from this season considering how young this team is and especially the injury to um, Peyton. So that'll be um, big going down the stretches when they play teams that aren't really, you know, they're not Stanford, they're not UCLA, USC, but the kind of mid-tier Pac-12 teams, um, the Ducks really just need to prove they're better than those teams, and then it'll be a positive season. Now, one of the questions I have is, is beating this team as easy as finding a way to defend Chance Gray, Grace Van Sluten, and Filipina K? Right now, it looks like it might be, unfortunately. The big three has been great. Um, all three of them are in double digits pretty frequently. Uh, however, it's when you get past that. If one of them has an off night, there's not a whole lot of like ancillary scoring that can make up for it. Um, there have been nine non-Big 3 games where somebody scored in, in double digits. Sophia Bell has five games in double digits. Um, Sarah Rambis has one. Priscilla Williams has one. Ula Chamberlain has one. But other than that Big 3, you're not really getting that secondary uh, scoring from anyone. So if Chance Gray has a game where, like she was early in the year, she was struggling from three, she goes one for six, oh for six, something like that, there's not um, another threat on the perimeter that's going to make more than one or two. I just think going down the roster, there's not that many offensive threats just all around. I think Sophia Bell, um, she's a freshman, but she's a bit one-dimensional. And I think that... At the same time, she really serves a purpose on the floor. Like, she needs to be on the floor. She's a great defender. She's probably, I mean, 
outside of Chance and Philly and Grace, she might be the best defender. So I think that the people that have to be on the floor aren't going two ways. Like Rambis may only be productive on offense one night, and that's kind of a she's kind of a bit of a cone on the on defense. So I think that a lot of the time, I think they just need the secondary people to just be everything and not just one dimensional. And Kelly Greaves has talked about that a little bit, just that, yeah, they don't have a ton of players that are two-way players, and so there's only a limited uh, kind of amount of names that he can consistently uh, put on the floor because he needs players that are going to be able to get a stop on one end and score on the other, and, and there's really only maybe a couple of names outside of that big three that can do that. And, yeah, there's not really many perimeter shooters on this team, which is another point he's kind of hammered home throughout the season. I'm glad that you mentioned Coach Graves because, Lily, you actually have a piece coming out about him this week. Um, It's been kind of a rough few years for Oregon women's basketball, kind of taking a step back since the whole Sabrina era. Um, Since then, there's been a lot of really – star players that have transferred out of Kelly Graves' program. I mean, you've got Sedona Prince, Tahina Pow Pow, India Rogers, Maddie Shear, Sydney Parrish. There's been a lot of big names leaving. And since that, since the Sabrina era, I mean, the team made the tournament one year, kind of made an NIT run the next, and, but taking steps in kind of the wrong direction. How much do you read into that? And really, what is this next piece for you looking like? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I feel like this program is still a little stuck in what it once was. And maybe part of that is, you know, Kelly Graves. He was, you know, he won like Pac-12 Coach of the Year for a while while he had Sabrina and Ruthie Hebert and Satu Sabali, and they were this big powerhouse. And now he's having to shift the needs of what his team's looking like because there's kind of this weird transition phase where they did have Niara Sobley and she was this big star that was left over from that team and they were able to make the tournament but after that it's all these young faces and there's been almost a lack of you know veteran players that have they've gotten fifth year transfers and and veteran players throughout the transfer portal but not ones that have been with the program for a while and that are able to really carry on what the identity of this organ program is and part of that is can maybe that question is can Kelly Graves you know do that all on his own or does he need some players to help kind of lead by example on the court and so yeah, this team is no longer the top dog in the Pac-12 uh, or nationally. Uh, and so it's it's hard to bring in big names to, to come play for this program. And then it's just a lot of transition in and out of this roster and a lot of uncertainty. And in all fairness to the team, the Pac-12 is absolutely loaded this year. I mean, you've got five ranked teams right now, four of which, Colorado, Stanford, UCLA, and USC, are ranked in the top ten. So some of these losses are coming to quality opponents, but if Oregon's going to make the goal this year of making the tournament, what still needs to happen? How hot does this team need to get in this loaded conference, especially right now, this Oregon team, two and six on the road? 
What needs to change? How hot? How, just how hot do they need to get? And do they need to win out in Vegas? Do they just need to beat one of these top 10 teams a couple times? What needs to happen for this team to be dancing in March? I think given their record right now, it's going to take a lot. But I think they just need to win. All, all they need to do is win right now. And that's the only thing that can matter right now for Kelly Graves and them. It, it just has to be winning right now. And then that'll snowball. That'll keep going because they already have two straight wins right now. And heading into Stanford, which you know could could be a disaster, could be great. Um, I just think that they they just need to make the win snowball. And the way to do that is consistency. So they got to find that from somewhere. I think you know, like you mentioned, they're coming off of a couple of recent wins uh, against. Arizona and Arizona State, which would hopefully be a confidence boost to this team and show the players kind of more of what they need to do uh, to have success. But for this team, again, just loaded conference. They need to have their best game every game if they're going to have a chance of beating out teams like UCLA, USC, Stanford that are not just the best in the conference, but the best in the nation. Uh, and so they just need to get everything clicking if they're going to have a chance uh, later down the road. I think realistically, looking at their record now, looking at some of those non-conference losses, and they were to some of the best teams in the conference, but those three losses right at the start of conference play, I think realistically the only way they get in is if they if they win out in Vegas. Um, that being said, there is a lot of room for growth. Uh, they have a big game against Stanford tonight. It doesn't seem like with their track record that that is a game that is a win that can be marked as a competitive game, maybe even. But um, if they they have some of these games against some of the top teams coming up um, and they're going to play a couple of them again, they're going to get USC, UCLA again, and they're going to play Stanford uh, one more time after tonight. And so if they can turn it around a little bit midseason, keep... um, building momentum with wins over like the mid tier, the lower tier of the Pac-12 and maybe leverage that into a win or two over the top teams. Maybe they sneak in, but they have to, they have to play pretty perfect. They can't take any um, hard losses to some of those bottom teams. They really have to go out there, take care of business. Yeah. Earlier losses. I mean, this year have just, they kind of set the tone for what this year's become. A rough loss to to Santa Clara early in the year, 31-point loss to Portland, um, bad loss to Utah Tech earlier this year. We've talked a lot about the the injury to Peyton Scott in the first game of the year and, oh, how, how much of a dampening thing that was. With the team that's had some of these big struggles like this team's having, how much of that can you put on the loss of Peyton Scott. Like, like say Peyton Scott had been healthy, has been what she was advertised to be for the Ducks this year. How much better off is this team, or do you think this team is still kind of floating in the middle of the Pac-12, kind of behind these super highly ranked opponents? I mean, when you look at what this team is able to do on the court, I think that changes probably pretty significantly. But in terms of where it ranks within the Pac-12 conference... I don't know if that changes very much. Probably move a little bit more from the bottom of the conference to the middle of the conference uh, because her leadership, I think, would have been really big to have on the court, and then she can just do a lot more things for them, more of an all-around player that can shoot the ball uh, and add 
more offense, talking about scoring outside of the big three. So I think it would be a better team on the court, but not maybe not in the standings as much. I think that one game to really look at in terms of the Peyton Scott situation is the Utah Tech game because in that game, Oregon went down pretty pretty uh, soon. It took them five minutes or so to lose the lead and never really gain it back. And this is because, like, you know, Utah Tech shot the lights out, and that's not going to happen every game for any team. And I think in those type of games, especially against a team like Utah Tech, uh, you need someone like Peyton Scott to be there and have that experience in those kind of um, situations so that they'll push through and, you know, take care of business. Because by no stretch of, of any, like, consideration is Utah Tech a, a, worse, a better team than Oregon on paper. And it didn't really look like that on the court. It just kind of looked like they made a lot of threes. So I think someone like Peyton Scott just really shores up everything just in terms of spirit and involvement mentally Oregon women's basketball needs to get hot good four game stretch to do it be a really really big turnaround if they can get even two wins out of these next four I mean at Stanford tonight 25 and a half point underdog at Cal and then against number 20 Utah and finish off the month against my Buffaloes hometown buffs third in the nation love to see it Oregon women's basketball time to get going Let's switch gears a little bit to a team that's also not playing necessarily how people thought they would this year. The men's team, looking pretty good so far. Had its first conference loss last night to Colorado, but that was a hard-fought game against a good Buffaloes team. What's going right with this men's team? What has Dana Altman done to kind of turn this program onto the right foot? What has Dana Altman done to kind of turn this program around and get it going on the right steps? Really what's most impressive to me is the fact that they did all that. They are first in the Pac-12 largely without Dante and Nate Biddle and a lot without Mookie Cook. That's one of their best recruits and their two top centers from last year. So to be able to go to a place like Washington and beat that Huskies team without your best guys, you're playing a short lineup, that's what's been most impressive to me so far. The fact that it's been guys like Jackson Shalestad and Kwame Evans Jr. who have really pushed this team forward. Jermaine Cuisner. Yeah, to that point... um, Dana's talked about it a little bit. Uh, a couple of players have talked about it as well. That This team does not feel like they have a couple starters and they have a couple bench guys. This team feels like they have like eight or nine starters and they just can only start five of them at a time. So, And that's really been on display. Um, last night, it, they didn't really have like a number one score. Bam Tracy led the team with 14, but they had like six or seven players in that range of like eight to 14-ish points. They... And that's pretty consistent every year or every game. Um, they don't have a whole lot of 20 point games, but they have a lot, a lot of double digit 12 to 14 point games from a lot of different players. Yeah, and Dana's feeling it. I mean, this team's got some really talented players, and it's only going to increase when they get more and more healthy, just get more reps with Dante, you know, still adjusting to game speed that we've seen. But this team's really talented, and it's going to be interesting what they see down, what they do down the stretch. How much are you buying into this hot start? Because, yes, Oregon is beating a lot of the teams on its schedule, but the teams on its schedule haven't been necessarily that quality. Um, 0-1 this year against ranked teams, and that was Alabama early in the year. It was a 99-91 to loss. So it was competitive, but it was still a loss. Other than that, these teams, they haven't been ranked. We haven't run into Arizona yet. We haven't seen Oregon play some of these really, really top teams. I mean, yes, a win against USC earlier in December, but USC was kind of getting its footing at the time. Now it looks like a whole different program. 
How much are you buying into this? Is Oregon sitting, does Oregon sitting at the top of the conference seem about right for what this team is? Or does this seem like a hot start that the Ducks are just going to try to cling to for as long as they can to hopefully end up in the tournament at the end of the year? This year for the Pac-12 is not as strong as it has been in the past. Obviously, you have Arizona. Um, They're incredible. They're still in the top five. They're a tough team uh, to play, and that is a team that looms large on Oregon's upcoming schedule. Other than that, the second-best team kind of gets a little muddy. Is it Colorado? They just beat Oregon. It's tough to argue Oregon over Colorado right now, but they're in that, that range. So... When you look ahead to to Pac-12 play, it's a chance for Oregon to really rack up wins against like Power Five opponents that aren't necessarily as good. It could make their their record look a little better. Oregon could win twenty plus games in a Power Five conference without really playing a quality schedule, and that could prove the difference for them to sneak into uh, March Madness, where like a lot of people did not have them entering this year. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is it's this is an unsustainable style of play. In order, if you're gonna beat those Arizonas, if you're gonna beat these next three games, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, three of the top five in the Pac-12, you're gonna have to start playing around Dante. It doesn't mean that you you have to step completely away from that small ball, but it means that you you have to embrace this seven foot guy who's back and who's gonna give you points per game. Yeah, Dana's talking about that. For this team to reach its full potential, they need Dante to be 100%. Obviously, the the freshmen are great. Jackson Shellstad's really emerged as a primary scorer for this team. But for them to be able to be a serious contender in the Pac-12 tournament and in March, they need Dante to be 100%. He really raises their ceiling, and it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts to get back full, fully healthy. Yeah, and against Colorado, it was like... They were, they were doing well, they were doing well, and then he started heaving and running down the court, and you saw him get beat, and it, he came off, and it just really, they didn't look the same after that, and Colorado just went on their run to win the game. So we all know that I love the ESPN matchup, predi- matchup predictors. We know I love looking at that wheel that's got percentages of who's supposed to win what game. I'm looking at Oregon's remaining schedule this year. Of the 14 games left on the docket, Oregon is statistically projected to win eight of them. Is that going to be enough? How many of those how many of those six losses need to become wins for this team to reach what it wants to be, for this team to finally get back to March Madness with the writing on the wall, like Owen's been talking about in a great piece that just came out last week. Um, tell, what's what needs to happen there? I mean, it definitely depends who you lose to, right? You know, they can go and beat if, if they go and beat one of those teams that they're playing in these next three games. That looks really impressive, and that vaults them up. And you know, they're still at the top of the Pac-12. And I mean, maybe they are going to cling to it. But if you can say to like the powers that be, "Hey, we were at the Pac-12 for sixty percent of the season, even though this last forty percent of the season when is is when it wasn't there. Look, look at the quality we have, and we can bring that in March." Can you tell us a little bit more about this writing on the wall piece? Because like we were talking about with how Kelly Gray's program is starting to raise some eyebrows, this was a season that was kind of a prove-it year for Dana Altman, like we've, we've talked about several times. And so far, it's been really well. And So tell us a little bit more about your writing on the wall piece. What's been so impressive and key to what looks like it could be the start of turning around a program? Yeah, exactly. So we were all hanging out at preseason media day, and the— a couple of the players started mentioning something really interesting, which is that they have this list up in the locker room at Matthew Knight Arena that's their goals for the year. And it was, you know, this idea that they have to prove it and they have to, they, you know, for the first time in a little bit, they're out of the top 25 for the start of the year. And so this, they're like, this is what we want to do. Dante, 
was in his interview and he was, you know, in his role as a leader team, hey, we're going to make the tournament. Yes, we believe we can do that. Hey, we're going to win our games. We're going to win the Pac-12. This is what we want to do. And they're setting those goals really early in order to tell the world, hey, this is where we are. This is our reputation. We're here for it. How cool has it been as student journalists to be able to cover this team and talk to some of these incredible athletes? I mean, we talk a lot about the sports that we cover, but we don't so much talk about these interactions with these with these athletes. Um, who has been the most fun to talk to this year? Who have you guys really enjoyed conversing with, getting to know? I had a really fun time talking to Dante Amidia. That's where I found out about that list. But he's he's just a fun guy to talk to. I mean, he's, he's a big dude, but, but he just like chatted about you know like how it's tough to be seven feet tall. He loves riding his bike. Like, th- these are things that, you know, they're... I love riding bikes, man. And so does Dante. And it's great. But he's, he's also just an incredibly insightful guy. You know, he talked a lot about, you know, how he came to Oregon and really what that journey has been like for his basketball career. And he's, he has a lot of insight on that. That isn't something you really hear from every single college athlete who went to an American high school. And really, that was their journey. Yeah, for me, it's been um, uh, J.J. and Tracy. He's has like a really kind of unique path to Oregon. He started out as a junior college player and now he's uh, with Oregon and he's providing like really good minutes off the bench. He's he's a really solid defender and he's had a couple games where he leads the team or gets close to leading the team in scoring. And he is just like a really down to earth person with a lot of really interesting perspectives on uh, both the game and just like how he's adjusted to Oregon and a bigger campus and a bigger sports culture than than what he's used to there are just there's some awesome awesome stories on the team this year i think on the football side uh jackson powers johnson i remember one day brady we were sitting and he started talking about how he uh, he had to announce that he lost in golf to casey rogers and i was thinking that wow this guy's gonna be playing in the nfl next year and here he is he's still a college kid just like the rest of us and i thought that was kind of cool to just be able to see that hey even though this guy's gonna be super famous one day he's still he's still a college kid I'd like to publicly announce that I lost at Madden to Joe Krasnowski the other weekend. Smoked. Nice. nice. But there are, there's a lot of great stories. It's fun to talk to these athletes. I mean, one that comes to mind for me, men's basketball team, Brennan Rigsby, grew up in Debeck, Colorado, and which is near Grand Junction where my, where my grandparents live back home. And it turns out, I was talking to my grandpa, he actually coached Brennan Rigsby's dad in baseball when he was growing up. Like, just crazy small world stuff. And now a kid from Debeck, Colorado, who played at JUCO, is at Matthew Knight Arena in front of all this Nike money and outrageous-looking court. And it's just, it's a cool it's a cool thing to see. Um, but, Joe, I, I got a question especially for you because you've been at Oregon for several years now. You've followed this, this men's team pretty closely for a while. Is Jackson, is Jackson Shellstad already better than Will Richardson? <laughs> Ooh, it's tough oh, to say. Wow, wow. <laughs> uh, it's tough to say. I mean, they both brought different things. Um, Will Richardson was much more of like a table setter. He'd get you three, four, five assists on a pretty nightly basis. There have been plenty of nights where I look at the box score after the game, after watching it, feeling like Shellstad wasn't really a playmaker, and it. I look at the box score and it backs it up. He has one, two assists. He's not as much of that type of player, which... I think with Dante being out was a good thing. Uh, this team was looking for somebody to take those shots to uh, fill in for Dante with the scoring. But as Dante comes back, it kind of remains to be seen where um, those things that Shellstead lacks are going to hurt the team or if they're not going to, if it's just two scores out there on the court at the same time, they'll just make it work. Or if it really is just like 
Shellstad not being able to move the ball as well as Will Richardson is going to hurt this team in the long run. It's a fun time to be following this Oregon men's basketball team. A lot of interesting stories. couple big home games coming up next week. It's been good to see fans kind of starting to pay, buy into this team a little more. Matthew Knight Arena attendance has been on the ups since last year, which is, I know, something that we've talked about several times. A couple big games. Arizona State's coming to town next week. They're 10-7. and seven. Arizona, ranked 12, 13-4 overall, coming to Matthew Knight next Saturday. A um, couple big games there for the Ducks. couple opportunities to keep clinging to what's been a very hot start. All right, switching gears to some sports that are coming up. Oregon men's and women's tennis both start this weekend. Baseball is starting in about a month down in Arlington. Softball is getting underway soon. Acro is getting started soon. We're excited to bring a lot more coverage to a lot of these Oregon sports teams. We don't so much talk about club hockey. They're playing an outdoor weekend this weekend in Bend. That looks awesome. Um, some cool stuff happening there for sure. And it it's an exciting time, even though it's winter in Oregon and it's dreary and cold and rainy every day there's good good sports happening so but there's also football there's always football it's a year-long grind right now off season Dan Lanning doing one of the most incredible things I've seen with his transfer announcement that he's not transferring and cinematic recap of a decision that he'd already made it was it was awesome he announces there were rumors that after legendary head coach nick saban's leaving alabama that dan lanning might be next in line for that job dan makes it very clear on social media that he's not going anywhere and turns it into a recruiting technique i mean have we seen anything like that before i remember so i i saw this was it was it was a nervous night right i was i was sitting there like man is he gonna is he gonna leave and so i i wrote two breaking stories i, I wrote one Dan Lanning stays, and one, it goes, Dan Lanning leaving, and I was talking to Joe, and I was like, Joe, I have these two stories written. He's like, you can, you can can the Dan Lanning stays one. It's not going to be a story. And then it happened in the morning, where we were like, yeah, it's a story. It's a story. He publicized it like no other in such a great video, and I mean, kind of just capped off like a perfect week for Oregon, fo- for Oregon football. I thought, I thought that the reason that, like for me, the main reason that I thought he was leaving was because he didn't do that. Um, initially on that day, but I, I feel like you know videos like that you know take a bit of time to make. We find out he was just at home watching. Yeah, he was busy watching a movie. Yeah, I mean smoking cigars, making steaks, like like real men. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Lanning, what a guy! But in turning this program, another program that's on the up and up. I mean, every year with Dan Lanning just continues to build excitement. So whether it be with wins on the field, recruits during the off season, transferring. Washington falling off the face of the earth. There's a lot of exciting things happening for Oregon football fans right now. Um, And Jack did a great job on National Early Signing Day. He and I woke up and wrote probably a couple dozen little blurbs about players that are committing to come to Dan Lanning's program. And there's been a handful of transfers in that people are pretty excited about. So, I mean, what are some of these key key pickups that you think are going to make a difference with Oregon football next year? I think, I think honestly, the biggest pickup was Dante Moore because it proves that Oregon are not only a win-now team, but they're a team for the future. And with one fell swoop, they've proved that they're set for the future and set for now. And at the same time, in a lot of the recruiting battles, like someone like Jeremiah McClellan, who Oregon stole from Ohio State, I think those kind of players prove that Oregon is is 
a big fish. They're, they're not there to kind of get players taken from them and lose coaches and whatever. They're a big fish, and they're here to stay in the top five. And I think that was very, very important this offseason, just proving that. I got to tell you, I'm so excited to watch Dylan Gabriel sling it to this receiving core next year. Like, they picked up Evan Williams. That's going to be incredible. I, I cannot. Evan Stewart? Yeah. Wow. I, like, I got to tell you, I'm so excited to watch Dylan Gabriel sling it to this receiving core. Like, it's going to be so incredible. Evan Stewart, it, wow. I can't wait. I mean, Oregon had an underwhelming 12-win season, which is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. And now with these top recruiting classes, it's going to be impressive to see how this continues to build going forward under Dan Lanning. And there, there's been a lot of talk about the guys that are leaving. I mean, Bo Nix, Troy Franklin, JPJ, um, Brandon Dorless all going to the draft. But there's been a handful of guys announcing that they're going to stay at Oregon for another year that are equally as exciting as some of these transfer pickups. I mean, Tez Johnson's coming back. Jordan James is coming back. Terrence Ferguson's coming back. Jeffrey Bass is coming back. Some big, big names there. But with as great as the recruiting's been, one of Oregon's best recruiters over the year, Coach Demetrius Martin, Demetri Martin just took a job at Michigan State. Now, now a conference opponent for the Ducks. I mean, when I got to talk to Christian Gonzalez a lot last year, he repeatedly said that Coach Meat was one of the main reasons that he came to Oregon. So it's it'll be interesting to see if the secondary is still able to have this momentum of recruiting with, without Coach Meat, and if Dan Lanning is really just that guy that can recruit whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Yeah, and especially just because they're looking at a player in the secondary right now trying to pick him up out of the transfer portal, Jabbar Muhammad, who's like, he would be the cherry on top of what's been huge. this incredible He'd portal. He'd be a huge pickup. But now with Coach Meat gone, you know, does that happen? Dan's that guy. We'll have to see. Yeah, I think I think someone like Muhammad is kind of looking for a similar situation as Washington, and I and I think Oregon is that. But I think back to the point of uh, Coach Meat. I think I think that is it could really affect Oregon, but it also couldn't because I think the writing was on the wall a little bit with the kind of class that Oregon signed, and, uh, especially with regards to the freshman. It was a very defensive, front heavy um, class, and I think that. Given what you're saying, Coach Meat probably didn't have that much um, say in that, or didn't have that much involvement in that. And I, not to like discredit him or anything, I think that Oregon has kind of fostered a culture of defensive linemen like Dorless, and now Birch came, and Bassa's an edge rusher and a linebacker too. And with rushing and Breland coming in, I think that defensive recruiting is pretty shored up just in general because of Dan. But I also think that. You know, Oregon never really got the greatest cornerback recruits out of high school, and it's still to be seen whether they're about to get the best one out of the transfer portal. There's a lot of excitement with Oregon football, both in the offseason and going into next year with the new conference schedule. It's gonna, it's exciting that we're going to have headlines and storylines all year long other than, oh, Oregon's in a new conference now. This team is very much built to win now and, like you guys said, built to win in the future. We will have plenty more football coverage coming up as we get closer to Big Ten, but also, like we mentioned, a lot of those exciting winter sports coming up. We're going to have a lot of coverage from the Daily Emerald. That's about all we got for today's episode. Huge shout-out to Asher for helping us set this up, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Thanks so much.